0: Matthew chapter 16, the passage that we are going over today will be a very familiar passage, but it is a passage that is very proper for us to go over at the start of our new series that we are beginning today. We are going over now, we are in our whole series on systematic theology. Now we are getting to the doctrine of the church, of what is called ecclesiology. Now there are a number of different things that we are going to look at throughout the course of this series. On uh, a number of things of the visible church, what's called the visible church, the invisible church, um, the antiquity of the church. Some of those things will be hit today. The worship of the church. What are the ordinances of the church or the sacraments? Uh, There's a number of different things that we're going to be hitting as we work our way through this series. And I do pray that it will be beneficial to you as well. For we want to understand how the Lord has ordained His church, established His church uh commanded his church. There are a number of things that we would like to begin to implement as we work our way through here uh, to try to make our worship of the in the church even more intentional and direct. But as an introductory sermon, let's begin with Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to read from verses 13 on down to 20. And this again is a very familiar passage to us. It is one that we have often heard. But it gives us some very interesting things to examine when we are looking at the church itself. What is the church? Who owns the church? Is Christ actively involved in the church? What is He doing? And these are things that this passage really brings out for us. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 16, beginning of verse 13. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the Living God. Let us hear the Word of the Living God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it reveals to us about our Lord Jesus in in building his church. We ask, Father, that you would guide our thoughts and help us to focus upon the majesty of our Lord Jesus, our only sovereign, our king. This day as we are working our way through this passage. Teach us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us, strengthen us. Whatever your will would be for us, Father, we pray that it would indeed be done. And that we would have receptive hearts. Please bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. So here at Matthew chapter 16, a very familiar passage. A very familiar event that is going on. Jesus has been preaching. He's been preaching all over Israel. And of course we read of John the Baptist and him passing earlier in Matthew. Um, Here, Jesus begins to ask his disciples a certain question. And he begins to ask this question based on what the people are saying about him. Uh, Herod himself thought that Jesus might have been John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Because he had had him killed, obviously. But others were saying that Jesus was a prophet and trying to figure out perhaps what prophet he was or coming in the spirit of Elijah and those things. So Jesus asks his disciples, whom do men say that the Son of Man is? Well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is what the people are saying. But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? It's one thing for the masses to think this or to think that, but these are the ones that are closest to the Lord, that are walking with Him, that are being taught by Him, that are seeing His miracles and coming to an understanding of who He is. So he asks them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, being the one who is primarily the spokesman for the disciples, he answers and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Anointed One. The Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, just as a way of coming into this passage, it's very important to understand that the masses are saying one thing, the disciples are saying another, and that the disciples are honestly coming to a greater understanding in this confession of Christ. Because it wasn't just revealed through flesh and blood. It was the Father who had revealed it to them through the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And this is indeed no different than it is for us uh, even today. That we can, we can have an idea perhaps of who Jesus is. We can hear what popular people say of Jesus. But when it comes to the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that He is the Lord, that He is the God-man... That is given to us by the Father through the working of the Holy Spirit within us to enable us to make that confession. The Holy Spirit has to do the work within us in order to bring us to faith, to grant us faith, and that we would call upon Christ in faith. Understand this, as we have talked about before, that you do not confess Christ or place faith in Christ to be born again. You confess Christ and you place faith in Christ because you have been born again. This work is done by the Father. It is done by the working of the Holy Spirit. So Simon answers correctly. And Jesus acknowledges to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal it. You didn't come to this understanding on your own, Peter. You came to it because it was granted to you. And then Jesus says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and upon this rock I will build my church. Here's where we want to focus in. On what Jesus says to Peter. Not in the sense of saying to Peter that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. There are indeed a number of ideas that are out there as to what this means. Of course, you have the Roman Catholic Church that would say, well, the church was founded upon Peter. And Peter is the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Jesus says to him here that he's the rock and he's going to build his church upon, and that's not true. There's a play on words here. Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros. You're a small stone. It's in the masculine, singular form. And then he says, but upon this rock, And he changes to the feminine form, and it's the word Petra, which is a large stone or a a rock bed. Upon this rock bed, I will build my church. So he's not saying to Peter, Peter, you're the rock. He's saying to Peter, Peter, you're a small stone. But it's upon this rock, this massive ledge, this rock bed, your confession of who I am, that I will build my church. He's not saying to Peter, it's going to be built upon you. And Peter even understood this. If you hold your place there, when you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what Peter says. I'll jump in verse 1 here. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow into respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter understood what Jesus was saying to him. Not that... I'm going to build the church upon you. As even the Apostle Paul says that the church is built upon the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. Not only this, but of course, calling Peter the rock would not have went well. Uh, Just a few few, uh, uh, verses later, as Jesus is talking to them again, and this is in the same chapter, and He says to them that He's going to die, and Peter says, No, Lord, this isn't going to happen to you. And what does he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. So if he's building the church upon Peter, he's got some work to do, that's for sure. Because he's then rebuking Peter a few verses later. So it's it's not at all what Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock. Uh, the rock as well was a term that was given uh, or was told uh, by uh, the people of God towards the Lord. The Lord was their rock. Uh, The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Christ was the rock. It is a title that is given to the Lord. Not to Peter. Not to anybody else. It is indeed his confession of Christ. Of who Christ is. And it's going to be that confession upon which Christ is going to build His church. He is the Son of the living God. But here's where I want to focus in on. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build My church. Here's where I want to focus in on. Jesus' words of, I will build My church. We have many conceptions of the church as to what the church is. But we want to have a right understanding and we want to see the Lord's involvement in building His church. So the church has a number of different names within the Scriptures. It's the body of Christ. It's, it's the kingdom. It's the Bride of Christ. It is the pillar and support of the truth. It's the household of God. It's the, it's the family of God. It's the Church of Christ. There's a number of different titles that are given. The Temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. This is true. But we want to have a right understanding here. Jesus says, I will build. This is talking about His personal involvement in building His own church. He is personally involved in the building of His church. He didn't just ascend into heaven and then give commands. Now, I'm going back to the Father. You all fend for yourself. Build the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. And you see this in the book of Acts, how it's the Lord that is building His church. In Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 47, excuse me, back up to verse 46. The scripture tells us, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was the Lord who was adding to their number because it's the Lord who is, who is intimately involved in the building of His church. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This was an appointment by the Lord. This was a sovereign decree by the Lord. That He is intimately involved in His church. And we'll get to a little bit more on that, but... He is the one who is the founder. He is the builder. He is the architect. He is the only sovereign. He is the king of kings. He is the one that the Old Testament refers to as Adon or Adonai. He is the master. And the master is the one who is building his church. And so then, that brings to mind some other things that we need to understand. That if it's Christ who is the master, who is the only sovereign, who is the architect, who is building his church then he is building it in a way that honors him most. He is building it in a way where he is giving them commands on how to conduct themselves within the church. The church is not just a free-for-all. It is not just to make you feel good. It is not to change things within the church in order to attract people into the church uh, that they may hear the Word of God. The church is structured in such a way that Christ will be most honored and glorified by the people of God on the Lord's day. He's the one who sets the rules. That's why that that we, and we'll get into this in another time, but you have the normative principle of worship and the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is, is uh, what the Reformers had called it where those things that are explicitly taught within the Scripture or reasonably deduced from Scripture, those things we do within the church gathering. The preaching of the Word and prayer and singing and the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are things that the Scripture teaches us that goes on within the church. The normative principle is, well, since the Scripture doesn't exactly forbid it, then we can do it. And That's not honoring to the Word of God because the Lord has given certain rules and regulations on how the church should conduct itself because He is the One who is the builder of it. He's the architect. I remember uh at G three conference that Paul Washer was talking about the seeker sensitive movement. He was talking about the things that were going on in the churches today of how the church has inverted its purpose in the sense that now you have to have lights and you have to have real hopping kind of music and you gotta have uh teachings that are that are more motivational speaking or uh, life lessons and all this sort of thing. And he he gave this analogy. He said, it's like this. You have this king who's getting ready to go on a long journey. And he calls his servants to himself and he gives them explicit instructions on how the servants are to care for his bride. And he loved his bride. He dressed his bride in the most purest of robes. She needed no makeup. She needed nothing to make her fancy. She was exactly all that he wanted as she was in all her glory and and purity. So the king gives instructions, and the king goes on his journey. And the king is, has been tarrying long. And so the servants come to themselves, and they say, you know, king's been gone for a while, and it seems as if the people are losing interest in the king because they're losing interest in the bride. And they say, well, we got an idea. So they bring the bride in. They take off her pure white robe, and they dress her more sensually. They put makeup on her face. They make her all up that carnal men will be attracted to her. And then they parade her down the streets trying to attract the carnal men that in doing so they would be attracted back to the king. And that's exactly as he had said it, Paul Washer, that's exactly what's been going on in the church. We have tainted the purity of what the church is supposed to be. And we have turned it into something that carnal men would be interested to come in here because we have this idea that all these people are out here and they're seeking after God and we have to somehow get them here that we can tell them who He is. Understand something. There is only one seeker in salvation and that is God. The Scripture makes it very clear in Romans 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. There is only one seeker, and it's God. So why is it that people seem like they're searching for God? They're not ser- Thomas Aquinas, as he had said when he was asked this question back in the 13th century or 12th century, he said it's not that people are searching after God, they're searching after the benefits that only God can give. They don't want Him, they want His benefits. Oh, we have this idea, so we got to pull them in here, attract them some way, give them the right kind of music and atmosphere and all this sort of thing, hoping that they will be attracted back to the master. We bring them in here for other reasons, other than to have them to know. And learn of the King. And grow in the knowledge of the King. According to how He has commanded. He is the builder. He is the architect. He is the one who sets the rules. He's the master. He's the sovereign. He's the King. And He is intimately involved in the building of His church. I love this passage in Revelation chapter 1. I think it really expresses this whole thing here. <clears throat> Revelation chapter one beginning of verse nine. I love this Revelation one beginning of verse nine. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So you have this beautiful, majestic picture of Christ that John is seeing. But when he turns to see him, he sees him in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which we come to understand are the seven churches. He is in their midst. He knows exactly what's going on in those churches and in representing the church as a whole. Christ is in our midst. He knows exactly what is happening and he is intimately involved in all that is going on. That is a beautiful picture of the reality. Of the master and his involvement. His personal involvement. In the building of his church. But he goes on. He says I. Talking about his personal involvement. Will build. He says my church. We see a very positive expectation. And a powerful advance. That he is saying here. He's giving this promise, this expectation that he's going to give the increase, he's going to add to the church, the church is going to prevail, the church will grow. This is a guarantee that Christ is giving here of what he is going to accomplish. Now, there have been times within the history of the church where it seems like The the future of the church, even now, sometimes we we look and we see whether the future looks bleak for us. But understand something. That there is, as as MacArthur has said, there is nothing in the kingdom of darkness that has any influence or any bearing on the kingdom of God. There is nothing that goes on in the kingdom of darkness in the world that can have any effect on the kingdom of God. Why? Why? Because Christ is the Master. Because Christ is the Builder. Because God is the Builder. And because He is the Builder, and the Scriptures tell us so often that the Lord is in Heaven and He does whatever He pleases on Heaven and on Earth. The Lord Jesus says at the end of Matthew at His ascension, All authority is given unto Me in Heaven and Earth. Go forth and make disciples. We learn from the Scriptures as well that there are none who can thwart the hand of God, including Satan himself. And we just learned about that. What is the relationship to Satan uh, with Satan to the Lord? That Satan is the Lord's devil. Satan is on a leash. His leash is tied to the foot of the cross. So nothing that happens within his kingdom or what we would consider to be the world, the world system, has any effect on the kingdom of God. Regardless of what things begin to occur, we talk about how our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through such persecution in various parts of the world. In India, in China, in the Middle East. People that are being killed or people that are being abandoned by their families. I was reading of one in India. This woman who had converted to Christ and she was trying to keep it a secret from her husband. Uh, knowing that he would be very angry because most of them are Hindu and he was a Hindu, which Islam is very big over there too. But in, he ended up finding out and of course he rips up her Bible and he kicks her out of the house, uh, wouldn't let her see her kids and all of this because she converted to Christ. So many others, not only having their family to abandon them or to kick them out or whatever, uh, are being beaten, are being killed, are losing everything that they have for the sake of the Gospel. And yet, in all of those instances, regardless of what happens, the Kingdom of God is still growing. The Kingdom of God is advancing. I told you this story already, but it's worth telling again. That Dr. Joel Beeky, in the early 90s, was in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, talking to a man who had been converted to Christ from Islam. Islam is very prevalent there. And only a handful of people have been converted. This man had been converted maybe six months. But they had this this, uh, ritual kind of thing where the the Muslims would arrest them, beat them, let them go. Arrest them, beat them, let them go. Hold them for two, three days uh, to endure those beatings and then let them go. And... Dr. Beaky was talking to this man who had experienced these things and he said, well, how can we pray for you? And the man said, pray that the persecution does not stop. He said, well, what do you mean? He says, because we don't want here what you have in America. The lines are too blurred there. Here we know who are the people of God and who aren't. And in spite of that, the kingdom was growing. You take places like China where the kingdom of God is growing and millions are being converted to Christ. In places that are greatly enduring persecutions. Here in America, we don't really have that thing, that sort of thing going on. We have an Americanized Christianity, an Americanized gospel. And we change it on a whim just to see uh, whatever we can be friends to the world or have the world to be accepting of us. So we'll change it. We'll change direct things that are told in the Scripture just to avoid any confrontations. Take a lot of the big ones of abortion and the LGBT movement and liberalism as a whole. Yeah, we'll adapt. Uh, The church will adapt for the times regardless of what the Word of God says. That's our Americanized Christianity. To be quite honest with you, American Christianity is a joke. It has no resemblance to what kind of Christianity you find in the Scripture. If you can't take your Christianity somewhere else in the world and practice the same things and teach the same things, you're not... Uh, embracing orthodox Christianity. You have your own version of Christianity. When we are faithful to preaching the Gospel, when we are faithful unto Christ and enduring the things that may come, regardless, that even in the times of most persecution, Christ is building His church. He's weeding out the nominal believers, nominal Christians, and He is establishing His church. Because he is the one who is building it. And he gives that guarantee, I will build my church. This is including, by the way, his church is also including of the Old Testament saints. We have this idea that the church was birthed at Pentecost. No. The church has been from the beginning because the church with the compound word with ek, ek in paleo, which means out of the call. The church is the called out ones. The ekklesia is the Greek word there. And God has been calling out His people from the world since the very beginning. And not only that, but in Acts chapter 7, Beginning of verse 38. This is Stephen when he is before the religious leaders and he is preaching to them. Here's what he says in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. This word, congregation, is the same Greek word, ekklesia, church. In Hebrews chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22. If you go back and you read Psalm 22, he says the assembly or the congregation. But here in the New Testament, quoting it, it is the same word, the ecclesia, the church. When you read and you look up in the Greek Septuagint, the places in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the places where congregation is used or the assembly is used, it's the word ecclesia. So you have the New Testament writers very much aware of the Greek Septuagint, very much aware of how this word is being used, now using that same word in reference to the people of God on this side of the cross. When we look in Hebrews 12 and we see the Hall of Faith, That should give us an idea here. All these people in the Old Testament that were true believers in God were saved by grace through faith. They were saved by the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot be converted apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work within you. Christ has been building His church from the very beginning. He brings it into its maturity at Pentecost. Because the significance of Pentecost is not that the Spirit comes to indwell. He was already doing that. The significance of Pentecost was that the Spirit come in the fullest measure now upon all believers so that your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. It's not just for certain people that the Spirit of God would come upon them to do something great. Now it's equipping all the believers to do the work of ministry. That's the significance of Pentecost in comparison to the Old Testament. Only certain ones in the Old Testament had the Spirit of God to come upon them as judges or kings or whatever. And notice also when you look in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit is not indwelling. The Holy Spirit is poured upon. Poured out on. Same kind of language of the Holy Spirit coming upon them in the Old Testament. He's been building His church. He has matured His church. He is adding to His church. And his church is prevailing in the world. Because Christ is the one who is building it. I will build my church, he says. You have this possessive pronoun. But this is indicating for us his full ownership of the church. A paid in full ownership. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And then the Apostle Peter talks about you, you weren't redeemed with the silver and gold or precious stones, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Since he bought you, you are now his, you are his possession. And again, because we are His possession, and that means He sets the rules because He's the head of the church. He owns it. And as the owner, He can decide how the church is supposed to go. How the church is supposed to conduct itself. And this you read of in First Timothy. when Paul is writing to Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That God has not left us without any instructions. But Christ has actively taken involvement in His church. He has guaranteed that His church will be built and will grow. And He has given His church the instructions as His own possession on how they are to conduct themselves. He paid for it in full. The bride. With his blood. He purchased it with his own blood, as the scripture says in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. He paid the ultimate price to purchase the bride that the Father had given to him. And that ought to tell us something, too, about how precious that the church is in the sight of God, in the sight of Christ Himself, because it is precious. Spurgeon says of the church that there is <clears throat> that the church is the dearest place on earth. Helping for us to capture the proper perspective regarding the church. He says this, Spurgeon does, Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than His church. Therefore, being His, let us also belong to it that by our prayers, our gifts, our labors, we may support and strengthen it if those who are Christ are refrained, even from a generation, from numbering themselves with His people, there will be no visible church, no ordinances maintained. And I fear very little preaching of the Gospel." Now, he's speaking of the preciousness of the church in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Christ. And as you being part of it, You are indeed precious in His sight. You are His. Isn't that how the hymn says it? I am His and He is mine. He possesses it and He owns it. That's the very thing that He said on the cross. He said it is paid. It is finished. The telestai. This is a word that is in the Greek perfect tense. Meaning that the action that was completed then carries on infinitely into the future. He paid for you in full. He bore your sins on the cross. Everything that you have done, haven't done yet. The Father punished Him for it. And He satisfied the justice of His Father in your place that you can know the love of God. and you see the love of God displayed, in the cross. And all that He does now is our mediator, as our advocate. All the things that Christ has gifted to His church, you see the love of God in all of that. And why such love? Because you are His possession. You are precious in himself. I will build my church, He says. The church again being the ecclesia, the called out ones. It came to be known as the Assembly, one writer says this, the term ecclesia, those who had been called out, in the ancient world referred to a group of citizens who had been called out to administrative civic affairs or to defend the community in battle. Used in a general way and non-technical way, the term came to refer to any assembly or congregation. When used specifically in the biblical sense, The church of God refers to the community of those who have been called out by God from their slavery to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. The assembly, the congregation, the called out ones is the ecclesia. Now it's very important to understand this, and I don't want to minimize anything, so I want to help us to understand we talk about the building as the church and we know the church building itself is not the church. But we do talk about going to church. Now you have some that would say, well, I am the church. So I don't have to go to a church. I am the church. I'm the church that is out in the world. Collectively, the people of God are the church. Collectively. Collectively. That's why when we talk about going to church, we're going to the assembly. We're going to the congregation. We're going to be in the midst of the called out ones. Are you part of the church? Absolutely. But the church isn't just you. You are part of something much bigger than you, which is the body, the bride of Christ. The pillar and support of the truth. Collectively, you are part of the church. You are the church. And I say that and I emphasize that because we have such an idea today that I don't have to go to church. It's not commanded of me. Well, if we understand that the church is collectively the people of God, then we couldn't come to that understanding. Not to mention that every epistle within the New Testament is written to a church. It is anticipating a collected body of believers and giving instructions to the body of believers on conducting themselves and overseers and deacons and all of that. So if we say that we don't have to go to church, then we might as well rip out most of the New Testament because it's written to churches. And our Lord tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 not to forsake the assembling, assembling of ourselves together. The people of God collectively are the church. And there are such beautiful names for the people of God, aren't they? church, a peculiar people, a holy nation, as I said, the pillar and support of the truth, the household of God, kingdom of priests, the New Jerusalem, the Israel of God. These names and these titles that are given to the church are given collectively to the entire body. And demonstrate the preciousness that they hold inside of God. He will build His church. And we see in the book of Acts how He was adding to their number. As such should be saved. As were appointed to be saved. The Master has been working since the beginning. Bringing His people together. Making them one. And this is the amazing thing about being part of the church. And I say church in this sense of the universal church of God. All the believers, past, present, and future, you are part of the universal church of God. And as we confess in our Apostles' Creed, we believe in the holy universal church. It's actually supposed to be the holy Catholic church. Not Roman Catholic, but Catholic meaning universal. That's what the word means, universal. That's how the Apostles' Creed originally penned it. We believe in the holy Catholic Church, the holy universal church of God. This you are part of. If you really are His. And here's the great promise. That I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, it means to... That to overpower means to prevail against it. To get the upper hand. Even at a time when everything seemed to be a failure. As we see many times in the history of the church where the people of God are being persecuted greatly. Or even at this particular time after Christ is crucified, everything just seemed to be a failure. But He gave this promise. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is the place of the dead being personified as the symbol of the evil forces in the world. The evil forces will never be effective against God's assembly. They will never overpower it. They will never be effective against it regardless of what things that we endure individually. The kingdom of darkness has no effect on the kingdom of the sun. So here's the thing to be encouraged by as well is that some of us, of course, and understandably, are a little nervous about November. What's going to happen? We see so much evil coming out more and more each day it seems. Year after year, things seem to be getting more prevalent. Evil seems to be put on display and celebrated even more. But regardless of who's president, Regardless of who's in power. Our master. Our sovereign. is The ruler of the ages. He's the ruler of the world. And he will continue to build his church. So regardless, let our hearts be encouraged by this. To know that our God will accomplish all he desires. Because all things work together after the counsel of his will. That He's declared the end from the beginning. None can thwart His hand. He's already established all things in His sovereign decree. Whatsoever comes to pass. So then let us be encouraged in the days ahead, regardless of how dark they seem, to still rejoice before our King, knowing that we are His. He is mine. We are His people called out of darkness by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and that His church will prevail. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for the mercy and grace that You have shown us in Christ Jesus. Thank You that You are indeed the God of heaven, the God of all the earth. Father, You are indeed a majestic God. You work all things accordingly as you see fit. and Nothing is outside of your control. Your sovereign decree before the world was. You determine whatsoever would come to pass. So then, let us have confidence in you. Let us continue to rejoice before you as the called out ones, the people of God who have been justified in your sight on account of Christ. Let us rejoice in what you're doing in our lives of continuing to sanctify us. And let us rejoice before you, looking forward to the time when you call us home and there will indeed be no more pain or sorrow. And we will experience the culmination of our salvation which is to be glorified in Christ. Father, let us not be in despair regardless. Let us retain that hope and the joy of our salvation in Christ. Thank You so much for this privilege of being called children of God. And what great love that You have shown to us through the cross and continue to show us even now. You are truly magnificent, our awesome God. Father, we thank You again. We praise Your Holy Name. You be the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.